Even so, come. Lord Jesus, come. Is that your heart this morning? I almost feel like we could close in prayer. We just sang my sermon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, the title of this morning's message is Living in Light of the Rapture. As Rayford Steele flew his fully loaded 747 across the Atlantic to London, nothing could possibly prepare him for what he was about to experience. As a breathless flight attendant informed him that dozens of people had simply vanished. Terror and chaos spread across the plain and the rest of the world as millions of born-again Christians are taken up to heaven, leaving behind their families, their clothing, and all of their personal belongings. The rapture has happened, and everyone else is left behind. I first read this story in 1995. It was from book one of the series entitled... No surprise, what? Left behind. I'm sure many of you have read one or more of the 16 novels in the Left Behind series. By about book 12, I was like, they are really dragging this thing out. 16 books. And while it's very unusual for Christian fiction based on the Bible to become so popular, over 80 million copies have been sold. That's pretty amazing, making this truly a publishing phenomenon. Why is that? I think it's because people want to know what's going to happen. They want to know what the future holds for them. I mean, just think about the movies and the TV shows that are coming out. This, this society is ending. The world's coming to an end. It's like our society, our culture, our world is fixated on the end of the world. And based on what's coming out, they have no idea. So I think people were drawn to this series. And while I certainly don't agree with everything that's in the books, again, that's an encouragement, read with discernment. Overall, I was encouraged to find that the series tried to present a dispensational, literal, biblical portrayal of end times events. Even if they did take a couple fictional liberties I've got a verse for you. It's up on the screen. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. See, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and this is how he describes the biblically prophesied future event when Christ comes back for his church. Christ came first time as what? We just celebrated the spotless lamb to be sacrificed on the cross for the sins of those who would repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Him. But this time in the rapture, He comes to rescue His church from the coming tribulation. So as we continue our series, this morning we're going to begin to look at the actual events of the end times. And I've got this slide that Kyle introduced for us in the very, very first message. And you can see this is our understanding of end times events. And what I'm going to focus on this morning is everything that's in blue, what we call the rapture. Because this is really the event that kicks off God's end time 
program. And I just want to tell you up front, for me to end at 12 o'clock, maybe 12.05, if I can get a dispensation of grace, for me to end on time, there is no way that I can cover this exhaustively. So just realize that. It's an overview. Hopefully it will encourage you to go study yourself and be a good Berean. So this morning we're going to examine four aspects of the rapture so that we might live in light of Christ's return. And that's really my purpose this morning, church. It's not just to teach truth, to teach you something maybe you've never studied. I've never heard about the rapture. I've never studied this doctrine. I want you to understand the doctrine of the rapture. But I want to push progress. I, I, I want to encourage change because this doctrine should change us. It should motivate us to live differently in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Do you believe that? If you believe it, then live it. Amen? So that's really my purpose this morning, is not just to teach the truth, but I want to push the progress so that we would be more like Christ. So let's look at this first aspect, rapture particulars. The first aspect we have to consider are the specific events, the, the details of the rapture. I've broken this up into four sections here. Let's look at the events. Now, when we think about the rapture, the rapture is a supernatural event where the Lord Jesus returns from heaven and will suddenly remove the church out of this world. There are a number of passages that refer to the rapture. In fact, I looked them all up. There's over 20 verses that refer to the rapture. I am not going to exhaustively read through every one of them. But I do at least want to walk us through. There's three key passages that teach this doctrine. So turn with me to the first. It's found in John 14. It's the first place in the New Testament where this is mentioned. John 14. Turn there with me. You remember the story. The disciples in chapter 13 are asking, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I go, you can't follow me now, but you will follow later. They, they're getting concerned. They're like, hey, we thought we were going to be with you. And then here in chapter 14, Jesus comforts his disciples with these words. And I pray they comfort you this morning. Notice what Jesus says. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, Jesus comforts his disciples by promising them, look, I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And guess what? I will come back to receive you, to take you up to this place, this heavenly place. And what is the heavenly place that he's referring to? Well, it's the New Jerusalem that is talked about in Revelations 21. Again, you're going to get to that toward the end of the series. What is that New Jerusalem? What does it look like? What will it be like? How will we be functioning in that place to be continued? Now, why do we think he's not referring to the second coming here? Again, you're looking at the chart and you're seeing that there is a rapture that happens. The church gets raptured up. We're in heaven. Judgment seat of the Christ, marriage of the Lamb is happening up in heaven there is a seven-year period of tribulation for those who do not believe in Christ on the earth. And then at the end of that seven-year period, we have the second coming, which I'm going to be teaching on July 22nd. 
So why is this not speaking about the second coming? Why is this talking about the rapture? Well, notice Jesus brings believers, he, or excuse me, he comes from heaven to earth, and he takes the believers from earth to heaven. That's what happens in the second coming. He's up in heaven, believers are up there, we're already up in heaven. Second coming, he takes us from heaven down to earth to set up judgment and to set up the millennial kingdom. What is being described here in John 14? The rapture, we're where? Are we up in heaven? No, where are we? We're on earth. And what is John 14 promising? Jesus, who's up in heaven, will come and take us up to be with him in heaven. So this passage is not talking about the second coming. Sorry, I think I confused you, some of you in the beginning. This is talking about the rapture. So it's important to note just at the very beginning, we believe the rapture is a totally separate event from the second coming. There's a rapture, there's the tribulation, there's the second coming, then the millennial kingdom. And hopefully we'll be able to walk you through that as we go along in the series. Let's look at the next key passage. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to be going back and forth between these verses. I at least want to give you a brief overview of the three. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in chapter 13. Paul says this to the church in Thessalonica. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is probably the clearest text in the New Testament that talks about this event called the rapture. Now some of you are wondering, Chris, rapture, where does that word come from? Well, rapture comes from the Latin word raptura, which is a translation of this Greek word here found in 1 Thess 4.17, the Greek word harpazo. And so this is a Latin translation of this Greek verb. And, and the Greek verb literally means to, to snatch away or to suddenly remove. It has the idea of a little kid falling off and someone reaches up and snatches them to safety. In fact, in our translations, it's often translated caught up. Now, let me give you a little bit of the context behind this section. The church in Thessalonica has mistakenly believed that those who are asleep, and that's what it says in verse 13, those who are asleep, meaning those who had died, these are believers who have already died, they mistakenly believed that these dead believers had missed Christ's return. They were ready. They were taught there is a rapture coming. Christ is coming back for us they mistakenly believed that those who had already perished in faith had missed it. So they were grieving, discouraged. He reminds them in this section that faith in the person and resurrection of Jesus Christ will ensure that just as Christ rose from the dead, so too we will be raised from the dead. 
we will be taken back to heaven with the Lord. After all, isn't that what our pastor has been teaching us? Even Romans chapter 6, verses 4, verses 5, verses 8. What does it say? Just as Christ is dead, was, had died and been born again, so too those of us who put our faith in him, we have died and we will be raised to new life in him. It's the same idea. Just a little observation about this text. It's interesting because only a pre-tribulational view, meaning the rapture happens before the tribulation, only a pre-tribulation view accounts for their grief. I don't know if you've thought about that when you've read this passage. They're grieving. If they had been taught that they were about to face an imminent tribulation, then the second coming, they wouldn't be so concerned about that. What would they be grieved over? We're not ready for this tribulation. How do we face it? What do we do when we get in it? What's the role of the church? They're not even asking that in this text. What they're asking is, look, we know we're going to be raptured up. What about those who have died? And that's their main concern, implying, more than likely, they had a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, that the rapture was going to happen before pre-tribulation. So Paul begins to describe what's going to happen during this event. Notice first, Jesus will descend from heaven. What does it say in verse 16? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He doesn't send an angel to gather the elect, like it says in Matthew. He goes himself. Unless we forget, where is Jesus right now? I promise I'm not trying to trick you. Where is Jesus right now, church? He is in heaven. So we just celebrated his death, burial, and resurrection. And in Acts 1.11, the disciples are sitting there, the apostles are sitting there, and what happens to Jesus? Transfiguration, he goes what? From the earth, where? To the clouds. And they're looking up going, what? And what does the angel say? Why are you surprised? Why are you confused? He's going to come down, how? In the same way. It's an amazing thought that at the transfiguration, he goes up to heaven where he is until this event in 1 Thessalonians 4 happens where he comes down. It's an amazing thought. Secondly, believers from the church age will be suddenly removed from the earth. That's what this means. It says, we, the, rise, the, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be snatched up together with them in the clouds. So we meet in the clouds, dead and alive together. And who do we meet there? Jesus. Because they will meet in the clouds and meet Jesus in the air. That's what it says in verse 17. They will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. That's pretty cool. I mean, think about that. And then what happens? They're taken to heaven where they will never again be separated from Christ. That's what it says. End of verse 17. And so we shall mostly be with the Lord. Hopefully be with the Lord. What does it say? Always be with the Lord. From this point on, church, you will never be separated from your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Never. Nothing will separate you from Him at all. And in reality, this fulfills the pledge that Jesus made in John 14. I wish I had time to show you the parallel between everything that happens in John 14 and everything that happens in 1 Thess 4. They're parallel. 
the events, the words, the promises. And so when Paul is comforting these grieving Christians, no, don't worry, the dead in Christ will rise again. He's reminding them that this is fulfilling the pledge that Jesus made in John 14. Which he said in that text, that where, you, that where I am, there you may be, what, also. Now how quickly does this process happen? Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the third key, pec- key text. It does feel like I'm flying, doesn't it? If you want lunchtime, this is how it's got to be. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51, Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed, all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Notice in verse 51, he says, I tell you a a mystery. Why is this a mystery? Because here in the New Testament, something is being revealed that was not explicitly taught or seen in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. It's being revealed here. In verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This happens instantly. That's really what twinkling means. When you look it up, it, it talks about any kind of rapid movement. Think about how fast you blink. I remember as a little kid being on a whale watching tour off the coast of California. I'm on the boat. We are out there for hours. It is like everything is dead. There is nothing. There's no waves. There's no wind. There's no creatures. All I see is people's breakfast being thrown up over the side. That's all I saw. And then I hear from the, from the other side of the ship, hey, look, there's a dolphin. So what do we all do? Where? Where? And what does someone say? Don't blink or you'll miss it. So I'm like. Come here, Flipper. Blink. Oh, did you see it? It was so beautiful. No, I didn't see it. I blinked. Came up right when I blinked. What do we mean by that expression? Don't blink. You're going to miss it. This implies that this whole process will happen how? Instantaneously. I am so sorry to be the bearer of bad news. You will not float to heaven. I know, I see your faces. I'm sad too. The thought of floating. Bye. Hello. How you doing? Jesus. Somehow we had this idea. That's not what the Bible teaches. It says it happens rapidly. In the twinkling of an eye. That's the event. Let's look at the participants. Who are we talking about? Well, first and most significantly, Jesus himself comes from the church, for the church. And then secondly, believers who are said to be in Christ. In Christ. Again, this phrase is never applied to Old Testament saints. Think here. Paul is making a distinction between Israel and the church, talking about those who are in Christ, those who are in the church, that they will be raptured up. We get that from 1 Thess 4, 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. 
So there's an order also. We see the dead in Christ go first and then we who are alive will be caught up. It's an amazing thought. Well, what about the results? What's the result of this? Well, both dead and alive Christians are given new glorified bodies, which they will have for eternity. Remember when our pastor was teaching through the book of Philippians, and he came to this passage in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, and he talked about this, so I'm not going to belabor this whole glorified body idea. But you remember what Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says. It says, for our citizenship is where, church? It may say a U.S. passport, but that is not your citizenship. It's in heaven. And he goes on to say, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. We're eagerly waiting for this return, for this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. See, that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, when he says we will be changed our body is, is transformed. We call it glorified. It's perfected. No more sin. No more pain. No more heartache. My knees will not make that weird popping noise when I get up out of a chair anymore. Anybody feel, feel that? Anybody? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I don't even have to play a sport now to throw my back out. The other day I was rolling out of bed and I went, oh, something went wrong. This side of 45... Buckle up. And some of you are like, kid, it only gets worse. <laughs> I know, because you tell me. It's good for me. It keeps me humble. With this new glorified body, there will be no aches and pains. You never get tired, free of sin. And of course, John says something similar in 1 John 3, 2. He says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Now think about all the dead believers. Think about this. All of the dead believers from the beginning of the church until this future event, whenever the rapture happens. So from Acts 2 all the way till now. How many years is that? That's a lot of dead people. Are you, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? He is going to give them a resurrected body. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. What does that mean? When you die, what happens to your physical body? It goes back to where it came from, the earth. Somehow in this moment, God is going to supernaturally, miraculously, take all of the atoms from your body out of the ground, put them back into a glorified body, and when you go up to meet Jesus, your glorified spirit is going to be reunited with a glorified body. Uh, Chris, what about the one who was cremated and thrown in the Pacific Ocean? What about, yeah, God is able. Are you telling me the God who spoke something out of nothing can't do that? Is that what you're going to tell me? This is what happens. What does that make you want to do in light of who God is and what he will do for you and me? I hope there's joy and hope in your heart. Well, that's the results. I could go on and on about that, but I'm going to move on to the time. The time. When is this going to happen? That is the question of the day. When? I had a whole section I had to cut out. 
I was going to give you illustrations. I, got, I had a blast getting on the internet, finding out all of the people who have supposedly looked through the Bible and found a secret hidden code and this, and they're looking at Daniel's 70 weeks, and they're coming up with this, and they are prophesying when the rapture is going to happen. It was funny for a moment until I read the stories of what happened after when it didn't come true and how these people struggled with their faith and some of them abandoned their faith. The reality is no one knows when the rapture will happen because there are no signs preceding the rapture. And again, this is another distinction between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture has no signs preceding it. The second coming does. And I'm going to get to that later on. Again, back in 1 Thessalonians 4, I should have told you to keep your finger there. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, notice multiple times actually, Paul says, we who are alive, we. Why does Paul say we and not them? Because what is Paul saying here? He believes he is going to be raptured up. So he includes himself. What does that imply? Paul himself was waiting for this event. Eagerly, with expectation, he expected that it was going to happen soon. Sometime maybe even in his lifetime. There's multiple other passages that deal with that. Just consider James 5, verses 8 and 9, where it says the coming of the Lord is near. What does it mean to be near something? It's not far, it's close. And then he goes on to say, standing right at the door. It's not far off, it's right on the other side. It's close. We call this imminent or imminency. Imminent simply means that it's a final and imminent event that could occur at any moment moment with no preceding signs. That's what imminency means. And at the heart of this whole debate of pre-tribulation, mid-trib, post-trib, I'm going to get into that in just a moment, is really this issue of imminency. Because as we're going to see, this pre-tribulational view, pre-tribulational meaning that Christ is going to come back and take up the church before the tribulation, this is really the only view that holds to a clear definition of imminency. The other positions redefine imminency to mean something else. Imminence means there's no time to prepare. You don't know. And this is why any attempt at date setting is foolish. In fact, what I prefer to do is is what I call stage setting. How is that different than date setting? Well, stage setting is, is you look at such events, such as the return of Israel to the land. Is that important? Israel's back in the land. That is important. That's being prophesied about. Or how about political and economic union in Europe? Does the Bible talk about that? Oh, yeah. How about a worldwide information network? All of these things make some of these, the fulfillment of some of these end-time prophecies seem highly possible. So that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.7, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, eager anticipation of the Lord's return. I mean, why wait eagerly unless you believe it's going to happen soon? I mean, that's the whole point of why you eagerly await something. I believe it's going to happen soon. It's near. And so stage setting is better than date setting. There are some events that seem to be setting the stage, but we don't know when it's going to start. I want you to think about this. 
Think about the things that you eagerly wait for. What do you eagerly wait for? Some of you are eagerly are waiting to see who's going to win FIFA World Cup. You can't wait to see who's going to win. I hope Japan does. New iPhone model. Some of you went and spent the night in a parking lot to get the next iPhone model. You don't have to admit it. We know who you are. You couldn't wait to get your hands on that thing. Some of you eagerly await the birth of a baby. And the mother's eagerly awaiting might be a little different than the father's. Get it out of me. I love it. Get it out of me. I can't wait. I'll never forget, we had been in Albania just a couple years, been away from family, from our church, and it was the first time in many years that Shell's dad was coming from America to visit us in Albania. My wife and I are in the airport in Tirana, and Tirana had this thing where the baggage area was, was behind closed doors, and the, these doors, every time someone would come up, they'd open, slide open, and shut. And they had this area barricaded, so everyone wanted to see their loved one, and so we're all crowding behind this thing, and, and Shelly, I'm like sitting comfortably on my phone, and I look up, where's Shelly, and I can see her doing this. What is she doing? Eagerly awaiting her father. Why? She loves her father. Her father who poured into her a love for Christ and a love for prayer and a love for evangelism. She has such a special relationship with her dad. And because of that close personal love and affection, she was eagerly awaiting his return Perhaps we're not eagerly awaiting the return of Christ because our love for Christ has waned, has diminished, has grown cold. Do we still have this anticipation, church? Because while we do not know the time, we do not know the date, all we know is the Bible said it's going to happen and it's going to happen soon. Well, let's go on and talk about rapture positions. And for the five of you or ten of you out there that love theology at a deeper level, you know who you are. You're going to love this, but you're also going to hate it because you're going to feel like I'm not giving the other views enough. And I'm just admitting to you that I'm not. In fact, these positions don't agree on when the rapture will happen in the Revelation in relation to the tribulation. That's really what they're about. And while there are five primary views, three of them are major, two of them are minor, I'm only going to focus on the three major ones. On the back of your handout at the bottom, I've given you some resources. You can study this on your own. And if you have questions, feel free to come talk to Kyle after the service. Post-tribulation, I've got a chart. Now, positions, we're talking about when will the rapture happen? Post-tribulation, post Trib. People start throwing around these terms. That's what they mean. What does post mean? After. So just think post-trib, after. When will the rapture happen? After the seven-year period of tribulation. And this view teaches that Christ's second coming is one big event with the rapture and judgment taking place at the same time. So there's not a rapture and a second coming. The rapture and second coming are all happening kind of at the same time. 
That's basically what it teaches. This view also makes very little difference between the church and Israel, as both groups will experience the seven years of tribulation. Also, there is no imminency here. Again, this is why imminency is such an important issue, because the signs of the tribulation will announce when Christ will return it. And so those that hold this view and also the mid-trib view, they redefine imminency in, in a unique way. In fact, let me give you an illustration of how they redefine it. They say it's near, but it still has signs. So think about the little kid that's over his dad's knee who's about to get a whooping. And just imagine the kid is over the knee and the father raises the hand and pauses. Are you going to spank me soon, daddy? What's the sign? The hand. Do we know when the dad's going to administer the judgment? No, and that's really what the, so the post-drib people redefine imminency to mean it's near, meaning the hand is back, but there's signs to it, but we don't know when the hand is going to come down. So that's just a, kind of a, a way to, to think about how they're redefining imminency. Let's look at the mid-trib view. Mid-trib view, I've got a chart. What does mid mean? Come on, some of you are like, what does mid mean? Middle. When will the rapture take place? Right in the middle of the tribulation. And that's what this view is teaching. They believe the first half is wrath of man and wrath of Satan. Now, why do they make that distinction? Are there verses that clearly communicate that Christians will not suffer the wrath of God? Are there? Yes, in fact, we're going to look them up in just a little bit. So in order to get out of that and avoid that whole complication, what they do is they, they make a distinction. They say, well, it says the great tribulation that happens in the middle. Kyle's going to teach on this when he gets to teach the tribulation in 45 minutes. Have fun with that, Kyle. Great tribulation. So they make a distinction right in the middle with this great tribulation. The first three and a half years are the wrath of man, the wrath of Satan. Well, that's okay for the church to suffer. After all, didn't Jesus say you will suffer what? Persecution and hardship and trouble. Jesus never told Christians you're going to suffer the wrath of God, did he? He said, no, you're going to be rescued from that. He did promise, if you follow me, they hated me, they hated the prophets, they're going to hate you. You will suffer. And so that's how they get around this whole wrath of God thing. They say the first three and a half is wrath of man, wrath of Satan. And then right before the wrath of God comes, that's when the rapture happens. And again, there's no imminency because there's signs. The whole first half of the tribulation is going to announce when Christ will return. So again, that's why this whole issue of imminency, a lot of it comes down to that. There's a lot more I could say about that. For you post-tribbers and mid-tribbers out there, I'm sorry, I did not adequately present your view. I get that. But now we're going to present my view. I say that with humility. Pre-tribulation. We've got a chart. What does pre mean? Before. So this view teaches that the rapture will happen before the seven years of tribulation, with the second coming happening after the seven years of tribulation, and then judgment taking place after that. Now this view separates the church from Israel based on the biblical covenants, based on a literal interpretation of these passages and prophecies. Therefore, since the entire period of tribulation is the wrath of God, the church must be rescued prior to the tribulation. 
to fulfill God's promises that the church will escape the wrath of God. 1 Thess 1, 9, Revelation 3, 10. We're going to look at some of those later. So there is imminency in the pre-tribulation view because there's no signs announcing his return. Now that's just an overview of the positions. Now let's move on to the rapture preference. Why do I believe that the pre-trib view is the best view? I'm just telling you, in my study of this, I found some. Again, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. A lot of this stuff came out of that seminary. Dr. Walvert had 50 reasons why the pre-trib view is the right view. 50! So I'm only going to give you 48 this morning. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to give you five. Five top reasons why I think that the pre-tribulational view is the preferred view. I just want to say this. I don't think we can be overly dogmatic about the particulars or the positions of the rapture. Did you hear me? We cannot be overly dogmatic. I'm not going to tell someone who's a post-trib or a mid-trib, you are wrong and you need to repent. I can't do that. We have to be humble. And while I do believe that the pre-trib view makes the most compelling case because it answers the most questions and solves the most problems, like that whole imminency issue, the pre-trib view is the only one that really solves that, Im- that problem of imminency. And so I want to present it. I want to interact with those who might disagree with me with grace and with truth. Amen? That should be our heart's desire. Grace and truth. So with that in mind, what are these five preferences? The reason why I prefer the pre-trib view. Number one, the imminence of Christ's return. Again, I've made this point before. Imminence simply means Christ may come at any moment. There's no signs or events that are required to precede his coming. In fact, New Testament believers had this expectation as expressed in James 5, 7, and 9, which I read earlier. And here's the passage in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. It says, to wait for his son from heaven. There's waiting, there's eagerly anticipation, there's expecting, they're saying we think it's going to happen at any moment. Now if there were signs preceding the rapture, we would be able to predict its time. Now, what are some of the signs that we would be looking for? Well, if we, and again, Kyle and I, we're going to cover this as we move through it, but there would be signs like wars and famines and earthquakes and Christian executions and false prophets and Israel reclaiming the land. Does that sound familiar to any of you? You're like, Chris, that's happening now. I know. Maybe it's sooner than we think. But see, the problem with the whole date setting is what happened to Hal Lindsey popular writer, wrote a book, and in this book he posited the idea that because some of these prophecies were connected with Israel reclaiming the land, that it would happen within a generation, a generation is about 40 years, and so he basically said that I believe that 40 years after Israel reclaims the land, and when did that happen, church? 1948. So what does that mean about the date of the rapture? 19. 1948 plus 4, carry the 0, 1988. And so when 1988 happened, guess what? Uh, I actually got on his website. He still receives criticism, and he, he tried to explain, no, I really wasn't saying it was the rapture. I was saying it might happen, and backpedaling. What else is he going to do? He wrote a book. But here's some of the other signs that we would expect to proceed. The Antichrist requires Israel and the nations to worship him. Moonlight will fail. 
stars will fall from the sky. And all of the events from Revelation 6 to 18. I'm just saying, if the moonlight stops reflecting the light of the sun, I think we would notice. And so this pre-tribulation view is the only view that has the idea of imminency. These signs are not preceding the rapture. Therefore, the pre-tribulation view seems to be the best view that carries this idea of imminency. Because as we're going to see July 22, there are going to be signs preceding the second coming, as described in Matthew 24, verse 15, and Luke 21, verse 11. Therefore, the rapture must come before the tribulation. Number Number two, what's the second one? Israel and the church are two distinct groups. Again, Kyle's going to get into this probably about Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It's one of the key texts about the whole rapture debate, about the, the 70 weeks and all of that, and the math that goes on behind that. In fact, those who are, as Kyle was teaching last week, are in the covenantal view, they mock us because they're like, you have to have like 73 charts to explain your view. They're like, we have one. And there's some truth to that. It, it gets complicated trying to piece all this together. But when you look at Daniel 9, 24, 27, you recognize that these years were prophesied directly to Daniel and his people. It says, Daniel, to you and your people. Now, if we understand that literally, what does that mean? Is that for Jews and Gentiles alike? No, it's for Israel. God's promises to and plans for both groups are distinct. His program for Israel is different than his program for the church. And so the rapture is designed to unite the church saints with Christ in heaven, whereas the tribulation is designed to bring Israel to repentance and to gather the nations to judgment on earth, two totally different purposes. Number three, the church has promised deliverance from the wrath to come. And I've been alluding to this multiple times. The Bible promises the church this. Let me just read three verses three verses where this is promised. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10, says, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath, rescues us. If he's rescuing us from the wrath and we suffer the wrath of God, then that means this verse would be false. How about 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, where it says, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where did the wrath of God fall, church, as we just celebrated the Lord's table? We sang about it. Who took the wrath of God so that you and I would escape it? Christ. And so any of you that teaches that to some extent we will suffer the wrath of God as Christians has to deal with these passages that seem to be saying the exact opposite. How about Revelation 3.10? Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Again, this theme of being rescued, of being kept from this testing. So again, just to make it clear, I believe the Bible says if you follow Christ, you will endure hardship and persecution because you are associating yourself with Christ, just like him, just like the disciples, just like the Old Testament prophets. But that is totally different from the wrath of God, which is reserved for the sons of disobedience. It's reserved for those who reject Christ and practice ungodliness and suppress truth and unrighteousness. That's who the wrath of God is revealed and will go upon in some day. 
Number four, substantial differences between the rapture and the second coming passages. Now, when these groups of verses are placed side by side, there's many significant differences in detail, which point not to one event, but two separate events. Take, for example, in the rapture, Christ comes for the saints. In the second coming, Christ comes with the saints. We've already read through some of those passages. How about this? The rapture has no mention of judgment. Hebrews 9.28. Next week, I'm going to be ta- ta- teaching on the Bema Seat about the judgment of Christians, and that's reward. It's not judgment. I mean, in a sense it is. That's what we call the, the judgment seat or the Bema Seat. Whereas the second coming brings judgment. Just look at Revelations 19.15. Second coming ushers in judgment. Another point is the destination of believers at the rapture. Believers in the rapture are taken to heaven at the beginning of the tribulation. That's what John 14 First Thess 4 seem to be saying. After the seven-year tribulation, the remaining Christians on earth who survived will remain on the earth to enter into the millennial kingdom, while the unregenerate are taken away in death. Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Revelations 9:21, all of these passages are saying this. Second coming believers are taken from heaven back to the earth to reign and usher in the millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign. Consider this, the rapture precedes God's wrath whereas the second coming follows his wrath being poured out on the earth. Just look through Revelation 6 to 19. And then lastly, in the rapture, Jesus meets believers in the air, whereas the second coming, he comes and brings us from heaven to the earth to dwell. The rapture, his feet never actually touch the earth. He's in the air. Second coming, as we're going to see when I teach this in July, or a little bit later, a couple weeks, his feet actually come and touch the ground. Two totally different events. And then lastly, the church is unmentioned in Revelation 6 to 18. You say, well, Chris, why is that important? Well, it's mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. 19 times, Ecclesia, the church, is mentioned. It's only mentioned once in Revelation 22:16 in the epilogue, way at the end. This is significant because it seems unlikely that John would give detailed instructions for the church in the first three chapters and then be completely silent as to the church's role in the tribulation in chapters 6 to 18. Why is that? Makes no sense. A pre-tribulation rapture best explains the total absence of the church on earth during the events of Revelation 6.18. Well, there's 45 others for you to go study on your own, but those are the top five What is the rapture perspective? Moving on. Regardless of what your preference is on the rapture and what position you hold, I want to challenge you. Consider the results of holding a Christ-honoring biblical perspective on the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. That truth should do something in you and me. It should move beyond the head into the heart and out through our words and our actions. So what should our perspective on the rapture bring? Well, number one, prayer. Turn with me to 1 Peter 4, 7. 1 Peter 4, 7. 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter says, The end of all things is near. Again, this idea that it's coming, it's near, it's close. Therefore, what's the therefore there for? As a result of the end being near, what should we do? Well, he says, Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer has the idea of being watchful. The end is near. There's a soberness. 
and a seriousness that drives us to our knees because church, is your job done? Is your work finished? All that God saved you and called you and gifted you to do, is it done? Well, if not, what are you doing about it? And we absolutely need God's help to get it done. Amen? So what do we do? We pray because prayer says, God, I'm dependent upon you. I need your help to do what you called me to do. Keep me watchful. Keep me serious. How about comfort? Turn back to 1 Thessalonians 4.18. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Again, I, I read this verse earlier. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he concludes that whole section of the rapture with these words, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Is that odd? If somebody is hurting, if somebody's loved one just died, hey, let me comfort you and tell you about the rapture. Is that the first thing that pops into your head? Try that next time you go visit someone in the hospital. Does it hurt? Do you have a tummy ache? Your head hurts? Hey, did you know the rapture's coming? And... That's what he's saying. Comfort one another with these words. Again, what were they doing? They were grieving. When we consider the reality of the rapture, we should comfort one another with this truth because no matter what hardship you are facing today, no matter how badly your body aches and groans, and boy, does it, it only gets worse. I have the gift of encouragement. And no matter how sad you might be at the loss of a loved believer, Christ is coming back. And if your dead loved one was a believer and you are a believer, guess what? This separation is momentary because someday you will be reunited with your loved one, deceased in the clouds and then in heaven for all of eternity. No wonder Titus calls this a blessed hope in Titus 2.13. It's a blessed hope. This hope brings blessing. See, evangelism, you would expect to find this, wouldn't you? 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to quote it. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and by his appearing in his kingdom. And then what does it say in verse 2? Preach the word. Preach it. And then later on in verse 5, it says, do the work of an evangelist. Preach the word. Do the work of evangelism. Why? In light of his appearing in his kingdom. It's near. It's coming. It should drive us to share our faith. How much time do you and I have to share the gospel before Christ's appearing? Do you know? And if there's no signs that will come before, I mean, this would be easy. If, if we had a six-month warning, like a big clanging bell from heaven, a trumpet, something, okay, you got six months, what would happen to your evangelism program? All of a sudden, your keto diet, <laughs> exercise, well, maybe a little bit, but I only exercise so I have more energy to do what? Share the gospel. Christ is coming soon. And if they don't repent, they're going to hell. If you get to heaven, and if, and I know this is, an impo this is impossible, but if you get to heaven and it was possible to regret, what is the thing that you'll regret? I never shared the gospel with Grandpa. He was mean and cantankerous. Every time I brought up the name of Jesus, he yelled at me and cursed at me and he cussed me up. I was afraid. I said, I'll do it next time. And then it happens and it's over. Is that something you would regret? Or maybe it was because you were binge watching Netflix and your next door neighbor is going to hell. 
How does the thought that Jesus is coming back soon challenge you to do the work that God has called and equipped you to do, which is to spread the good news to your next-door neighbor and across to the ends of the earth? Are you doing it, church? And if you're not, maybe it's because you're not eagerly awaiting his return. That might have something to say about the depth and the love of your affection for the one who gave it all for you. What are you going to do about that? I just want to encourage you. Some of you get overwhelmed by this. Just, I'm making you anxious just bringing it up. I know that. I just want to encourage you. Just start praying for one. Pray for one person. Make a plan and then do a plan. If you don't know how to share the gospel, part of that plan is, can someone teach me how to share the gospel? We will do that for you. Come and ask us. We would love to help you. And then do it. Make the plan and then do it. And just pray, rest in God, because Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Lastly, purity. Hebrews 10, 23, Colossians 3, 1. Again, just turn to 1 John 3. I want to close with this passage. This is the last one. Lunch is on its way. 1 John 3, starting in verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. When are we seeing Christ, according to 1 Thess 4, in the clouds? When will we be like him there? Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's an amazing thought, that the idea that someday I will come face to face with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the hope of that should purify me. This is a purifying hope. And in the same way that I'm driven to clean like mad when I find out that my wife is due to arrive from a four-day visit to her sister's, I haven't done anything. The dishes are piled high. My underwear is on the chandelier. How did it get there? I'm not sure. My wife is coming home. She's going to be here any minute. And I clean the house because I want her to be pleased at what she finds. So too should this truth energize us to clean house on anything in us that would offend Christ at his return. I want him to be pleased at what he finds. Ask yourself, is there anything in my life, anything I do, anything I watch, anything I read, anything that I think or speak That if Jesus Christ were to come back right now, I would be ashamed that he would know I do that. Is there? Because that's what this hope of the rapture does. It drives us, it energizes us to say it's not okay. I'm going to mortify this with the help of God because of my faith in Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because Christians, there are no do-overs. You can't say, if only, if only I had been more committed to stewardship, if only I had been more committed to giving or service. I know I should have. They kept asking me, and I, just, I had other things more important. If only I had been more committed to loving my kids, I realized it just blew that whole season of life. If only I had been more committed to, to restoring relationships, and I let that unforgiving bitterness in my heart separate me from my loved one. And now it's too late. There's no do-overs. This hope should energize and drive you to clean house. Believer, clean your house. 
Well, in conclusion, we've examined four aspects of the rapture so that we might live in light of Christ's return. Now, will that rapture happen just like in the books? Will planes with Christian pilots crash into the ocean? I mean, just imagine if Brent Gill and Alan Jacks are your pilots. Two believers. What happens? Will cars veer off the road when Jesus snatches them from the driver's seat? Will there be little bundles of clothing all over the world? These things seem more the stuff of fiction than Scripture. Scripture doesn't detail the how, certainly doesn't tell the when, but it does give us enough to know that it will happen, and it will happen soon. There may be some of you here this morning, and you're hearing this, and you're going, this sounds like a movie. In fact, I think I saw it. Wasn't Nicolas Cage in that? But some of you, the thought that Christ could come back at any moment and you would be left behind, maybe that terrifies you. Well, the Word of God offers you hope that today, if you choose to repent of your sin and put your your faith in Christ, in Jesus alone, you can have the hope of Christ to be in Christ, saved by His sacrifice, that when He comes, you will not be left behind. And I pray that this would be the day of your salvation. Because church, Christ is coming back. Amen? May this truth motivate you and me to do whatever it takes to get ready for His return. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for the reality of what your scriptures teach, that Christ is coming back, that you have not forgotten us. And because of your faithfulness and your character, you will do everything that you've promised to do and laid out in your scriptures. I pray that this hope would purify us. I I pray that it would drive us to prayer, that it it would comfort us, those of us who are hurting and, and struggling, to know that no matter what happens in this time, in this place, that we will be with you forever and eternity. And I pray that it drives us to share the good news, the hope of the gospel. Lord God, would you help us to do these things, that to live in light, to eagerly await for Christ's return to stop making excuses if that's what we've been doing, to repent if that's what needs to do, to redirect our our time, to fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Whatever needs to be done, Lord, would you, by the power of your Spirit and the Word of God, reveal it to us, convict us, and give us grace to do it. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.